Hello, beloveds, and welcome to Christian Emotional Recovery, a podcast for those who are survivors of childhood trauma, emotional neglect, and narcissistic abuse. This podcast is hosted by Rachel Leroy, a college professor and trauma survivor. Many of us spend years trying to heal and don't get anywhere. We don't always target the trauma itself, which is so often what keeps us stuck. This podcast is where faith meets science. Rachel is an emotional healing expert with 20 years of experience applying healing modalities that helped her start making progress after nothing else worked. She'll show you how to do the same. Each week, we'll cover a topic that will show you how to heal trauma for good. Please check out our website and show notes at christianemotionalrecovery.com and join the Facebook community, Trauma Survivors Unite, Christian Emotional Recovery. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the next episode of Christian Emotional Recovery. I'm your host, Rachel Leroy, and this is Season 2, Episode 8. And today we're going to be talking about the impact of narcissistic abuse on our relationships, continuing in the series on narcissistic abuse. This is the third episode in the series on narcissistic abuse. Our first two episodes were a two-part um episode. So there were two episodes, but it was split into two parts. And the first part was what you need to know about narcissistic abuse. So it broke down a lot of general information that you needed to know about narcissistic abuse. What is a narcissist? How do narcissistic abuse relationships work? What are the signs and the warnings of narcissistic abuse? How does it impact the survivor and the victim? What are the overall impacts? How can you heal and protect yourself? And so continuing in this vein, continuing in this vein, we're going to be talking about the impact of narcissistic abuse on our relationship with others and on our relationship with God in the next episode. So for this episode, it's our relationship with others. And in the next episode, we'll talk about how we project unintentionally by no fault of our own what was done to us in the past onto our views of and our relationship with God. But today we're going to talk about the impact of narcissistic abuse on our relationship with others. So let's go ahead and get started. This episode, we cover the impacts of narcissistic abuse in childhood And then we go into the concept of codependency, because a lot of people who were narcissistically abused or abused by narcissists or similar people, such as alcoholics in some cases, can have similar traits and behaviors to narcissists. Not that all all narcissists are bad people and not that all alcoholics are bad people. There are some very kind and wonderful people who are alcoholics and recovering alcoholics. But some of the behaviors of an alcoholic who's not in recovery are very similar to those of narcissists. And so we'll talk about how that can create codependency and where that whole concept came from. And we'll talk about resources on codependency as well as how we project our relationships with our parents, programming, and trauma onto those in our lives that may even be loving and healthy. So even if we had or were raised by people who were dysfunctional or toxic or unhealthy, even if they were well-meaning, or narcissists or alcoholics or anything similar in our lives, we often will take those 
situations and project them even into loving and healthy relationships in our lives. I know, kind of sucks, right? But there it is. And so we'll talk about that and why that happens. And then we'll talk about ways to heal. I don't like to just talk about the impacts and the harms, but I like to give you either practices or strategies or education or empowerment or faith or something that probably a combination of those that can help you to recover and get your life back. So that's what we'll be talking about in the episode today. So the first section, like I said, we're talking about today. And this um, episode is another one that includes a lot of resources, not quite as many as the double episode one that we did last time. But this one, let's talk about the impacts of narcissistic abuse in childhood. And then we'll talk about how it can cause codependency in just a little bit in a little more detail. But um, so the causes of codependency, there's an article called The Causes of Codependency, and it's from the website Sun Behavioral Health Delaware, Sun Behavioral Delaware. And there's no author given, but like I said, all the resources that I cite in the podcast, I will put in the show notes. So check those out. So in the article um, in Sun Behavioral Delaware, The Causes of Codependency, it's called The Causes of Codependency. There's no author given. It says codependency defines a relationship in which one partner, it doesn't have to be a partner, it can be any kind of relationship, friendship, family member, co-worker, neighbor, anybody in society you interact with, really. When, but where one partner or other person has intense physical or emotional needs and the other partner spends the majority of their time responding to those needs. Codependency is the person that's always meeting those needs and not the person who... Well, it can be either one. It could be somebody that needs a lot, but it can also be somebody that meets those needs a lot, but not in a healthy way. That's not a bad thing, but it can be dysfunctional when it's taken too far or the relationship is one-sided. You see what I'm saying? So I'm not going to go through this whole article here, but there's a section called Childhood and Cause of Codependency. And this section really breaks down how relationships are started that create a codependent child. And that codependent child grows up to become a codependent adult. The thing is, is with narcissism, what they found is that narcissists, for whatever reason, their brain wiring, they're not capable in most cases of seeing their own flaws. And so they're not able to make changes in their life, to self-evaluate and to empathize with other people. Codependents can heal. Codependents can heal absolutely because they are more likely to be willing to look at their problems, even though initially they're not, and they're more willing to be able to overcome those problems from childhood because there's a willingness to look at themselves, to self-evaluate, because codependents are empathetic. And empathy, part of that is self-reflection and seeing how you're interacting with other people and how that impacts other people. So um, here it says, like many psychological traits, both positive and negative, codependent tendencies may be rooted in childhood experience. At, as children, we form our basis of healthy relationships based on our relationship with parents and other family members. So this is me. If you have a parent who's narcissistic, alcoholic, abusive, toxic, or anything like that, if they say mean things to you, or if they just neglect you and, and avoid you or act like you're not there because they're too busy or because they don't care, either way, 
that can wire a child to try to get attention and to try to people please because they're trying to compensate. And unfortunately, I don't know why our brains are wired this way, but when we're treated in a certain way where it's like you um, are not a good person and you're told that as a child, how on earth can a child be told that? They're just in their formative years, you know, but if your parent tells you that, then you believe it. And if you're neglected or if you're treated less than, you're going to believe not their treatment of me is wrong. You're going to feel like there's something wrong with me. And that's how codependency is born. And then you constantly try to make up for what you feel like is a deficit inside yourself that really doesn't exist. You're fearfully and wonderfully made by God. But that's how codependency is formed. And it says, codependency issues typically develop when someone is raised by parents who are either overprotective or underprotective. So it could be parents that are completely controlling and like helicopter parents taken to the nth degree or the kids can do no wrong and their child's a golden child and there's no boundaries set and the or there's too many boundaries set is the other extreme. And the other one is the parents don't, protect their children at all. And so the children don't feel like they're worth anything because their parents don't treasure them. They don't tell them they love them. They don't give them attention. And even in bad case scenarios, they can even be demeaning, hurtful, abusive consistently. And of course, a child's going to feel less than. And if they feel less than, the way they're going to try to compensate is to people please. They're going to try to cater to people. They're going to try to bend themselves to other people's wills, even if they betray who they truly are and what they truly want. And they won't have a sense of agency. And I love that word. A sense of agency is where you have your own will, your own identity, and your own sense of self. And a lot of times codependents don't have a sense of self or an identity. And that's something that when they're healing, they have to work on that sense of self and that sense of identity and that sense of autonomy. Who am I? What do I want? What is God's calling on my life? And learn to please God. And even if you tick off somebody and you've got to do what's right, then you do it anyway, even if you ruffle some feathers. It's not that you want to hurt somebody's feelings. That's not the point. But somebody who's healthy and not a codependent can say no. They can set boundaries. They can be true to themselves and to God over other people's demands. They can be kind to people and help people, but also know where to draw the line. But it says overprotective parents may shield their children from gaining the confidence they need to be independent in the world. And it goes on into detail. You can read that there. Another form of overprotective parenting can come in the form of coddling to the extent the child never learns basic life skills. So they learn to be dependent. So there's a couple of kind of codependents here, and I think you could also be both at the same time. But one is the rescuer, and this is just me kind of making it up, but it's this is, these are the types. And they're the kind of people that rescue people. They're very nurturing. They're very empathetic. You know, no doubt, um, codependents have some great skills, and you can be nurturing and giving without being a codependent. It depends on if you are capable of saying no, of having your own identity, of setting boundaries. And then you have the kind of person that... Every time that they have an emotional crisis or something bad happens, they can't just go to God about it or just, you know, depend on themselves. They need somebody to bail them out, to rescue them or to help them. There's absolutely nothing wrong or shameful about 
calling a friend or a family member when you need help, especially if you're in emotional distress. I would even say that it's a healthy thing and you should ask for help. But these are people that can't cope with life at all on their own. You see the difference? So on the other side of the parenting spectrum, we see cases of underprotective parents. Um, In a healthy parent-child relationship, we see a solid foundation of confidence that allows a child to build independence at a healthy rate over several years. And something that can help you to understand this relationship and this development and the different stages of development more, I have a YouTube video, and it's Erickson's Stages of Development and Adverse Childhood Experience or Adverse Childhood Experience and Erickson's Stages of Development, but I'll put it in the um, show notes as well. And that can give you a reference if you want to understand how we develop healthy in terms of our different stages of development from being in the womb to being a baby to being a toddler to being a child to being a teenager and an adult and so on. So, um, But it goes into more detail there. But many children of underprotective parents may end up overcompensating by becoming very resistant to any guidance or support. And I'm sure we all know people like that. Some people are naturally more independent than others, and some people are naturally more interdependent than others, and I don't think that's dysfunctional either. We're talking about where if somebody has to rely on themselves, they can't or somebody who takes it to an extreme, or their motives are to people-please instead of to do something because they want to do good, because they love God, or because they love people. So you see the difference. We often see that many children coming from households with parents that have substance use problems, such as alcoholism, I'm adding that, may have issues with codependency themselves later in life. And then it goes into how codependent relationships from childhood carry over into adulthood, and we'll get there in just a little bit. I'm just wanting to show you the impacts in childhood right now. They may also seek emotional fulfillment from satisfaction, the satisfaction of other people. Again, I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing, but if that's the only way you can, then that's probably codependency. There's some gray area there, I think, because um, being happy with the emotional satisfaction of other people is actually what we're called to do. We're called to love people. And loving people isn't always doing what they want us to do. Sometimes that can be setting a boundary or punishing a child because they've done something wrong to teach them values. But, uh, you know, there's nothing wrong in of itself with wanting to see people happy and satisfied. But if that's all we can do, then that means that our motives can be out of balance and setting those healthy boundaries can actually become a problem. Codependency issues, though, it says, often go hand-in-hand with substance use and other mental health conditions and what is known as co-occurring disorder, okay? So that's a little bit about the impact of narcissistic abuse in childhood, a crash course, but um, just a little bit about how it impacts our programming and what we believe about ourselves. When somebody, like I said, if we're raised to become a codependent, then there's something missing inside of us as we believe it. There really isn't. God made us perfect, whole, and complete as children. And, you know, but there is something inside of us that feels missing. And we're always seeking to try to find validation. And we're always seeking to try to fill that empty hole inside of us that only God and only emotional healing can fill. And it can impact our brain. Codependents actually have higher activity in some of those 
fight or flight places in the brain. There's more anxiety. And to ease that anxiety, that addiction is to go and people please, to try to do something for somebody else and not think about why am I doing this? Am I doing it because I love this person? Am I, am I doing it um, because I want to please this person and because I want to glorify God? Or am I doing it just because I want their validation? And like I said, there's nothing wrong with wanting to please somebody, but you have to be very careful about your motives. I know because I am codependent. I'm a recovering codependent. And just like an alcoholic is a recovering alcoholic for life, I would argue that a codependent is a recovering codependent for life. But that doesn't mean that you will always have codependent qualities as you work on yourself and heal. So the brain, though, can get wired and conditioned in this way. And that's why the healing work and the reprogramming and the daily practices are so important. The healing strategies, especially targeting the brain, the conditioning and the programming and the trauma. Going back to the source of what programmed us and reprogramming that is the key to healing. So also the impacts of narcissistic abuse on our brains and nervous systems often cause trauma, PTSD, and CPTSD. Now, PTSD is post-traumatic stress syndrome or disorder. I like to use syndrome. And then CPTSD is complex trauma. And that one is a little more tricky, a little trickier. And there's an article called Long-Term Narcissistic Abuse Can Cause Brain Damage. And I would argue that can happen even if somebody had a great childhood and they're healthy and they end up in a relationship from hell where the person manipulates them, tortures them, brainwashes them, and gaslights them. But most of the time, a codependent is made in childhood. So I just wanted to briefly show you that I'm not just making this up. This isn't just a theory, but there's actual scientific proof to show how people's brains are rewired when they experience sustained narcissistic abuse in childhood. And it can impact your nervous system and cause PTSD or CPTSD. And that can keep that energy stuck in your body in fight or flight. Like your brain, the amygdala, that's the part that gets activated like an animal that's trying to run from a predator. Well, people have that too, but it's in fight or flight all the time and that's not natural. We need that part of our brain to survive. We need that part of our brain when we need to be in high alert. But unfortunately, people who have experienced this kind of trauma are often in high alert so much of the time. And it's not good for the body. It's not good for the mind. It's, it's not good for the emotions. And we feel it in our emotions where we're, we're just always aware. We're always hypervigilant. We're always seeking to please. We're always on our toes. And we can't relax and just be who we are and who God made us to be. It can be exhausting. Codependency is exhausting. But if you let those emotions recall what happened in a safe and loving environment, maybe with a therapist, and do the healing work, you don't have to necessarily recall specifics as much as feel those emotions and let just a little bit at a time, don't overwhelm yourself. That could be through meditation, prayer, reading, scriptures, reflecting, EFT, which is Emotional Freedom Technique, EMDR, which is eye movement desensitization, and so on. Um, those strategies are in some of the other podcasts. You can also look them up. But that will help those emotions to come back through your neural network. Some people even call it the chakra system. You don't have to agree with or believe that, but I do think that the chakra system is 
a legitimate way to consider how your emotions can come up through your body and out of your neural network. And all of those places in your body play a role in helping to get that energy and that emotion and that past trauma out of your body to rewire your body, your neural network, and your brain and your mind. So back to this article on long-term narcissistic abuse can cause brain damage. It's from Psych Central and it's by Kim Saeed. The article talks about, it says the effects of Psychological and narcissistic abuse come with many devastating consequences, but there are two that almost no one knows about unless they're a doctor or a neuroscientist. And in fact, it says these are the two most destructive results of emotional trauma over long term and is added to the reason why if you have children with a narcissistic partner, you should leave as soon as you reasonably possibly can. It goes into detail about just how abuse, narcissistic abuse in particular, plays a role in the brain. It tells first starts with the hippocampus. The hippocampus is a part of the brain, and it is a paired structure tucked inside the temporal lobe and shaped, in fact, like a pair of seahorses. So hippocampus is Greek for seahorse. Um, and it's for storing and releasing memory. So basically, if you are in an emotionally abusive situation, the more deterioration you can expect from your hippocampus. Great, huh? Especially when you're in childhood and you don't know better and you can't do anything about it anyway. But the thing is, is you can restore a lot of this and you can heal a lot of this. And neuroscience is proving that. Now, the next part of the brain it talks about is the amygdala. And I talk about that one a lot because that one is where fight or flight is. And that's also where anxiety and fear reside. Now, keep in mind that the that's not a bad thing. You need anxiety and fear. They sometimes tell you when something's wrong. If you didn't know something was wrong, you would never get out of a situation like that. It's those emotions that help you to know what's going on and give you the power to leave a situation if that's what you need to do. But that's where your reptilian brain is. And so the amygdala controls life functions such as breathing, heart rate, and basic emotions of love, hate, fear, lust, and so on. So it's also responsible for fight or flight. And it says victims of narcissistic abuse live in a state of, I would say, flight almost daily. Over time, the amygdala remember the things we felt, saw, heard each time we have a painful experience. So if we have an experience now that echoes something from the past, that turns on that fight or flight. So do you understand why it's important to heal that and where that starts in your childhood? Because your brain doesn't know the difference. If it sees something that matches an experience from your childhood where you were abused or didn't feel safe, then that is turned on automatically. But as you begin to bring those reactions down and you begin to calm your nervous system and to heal that stuff, then you're able to respond to things with more agency and with more clarity and with more calmness. And that fight or flight will go down and not happen as much when it doesn't need to. So that's just a little bit about how narcissistic abuse can change your brain. Um, it goes into more detail about how it changes your brain, but I'm not going to go into all that here. It also tells you what you can do. Some of the strategies you can do are guided meditation, aromatherapy and essential oils, 
performing acts of kindness, and EFT or tapping, emotional freedom technique. Now, again, I'm not going to go into detail of those here, but read the article and you can look up these strategies because I think all of them are great tools to help you overcome trauma, to heal, and to calm down your nervous system, and most importantly, to target that trauma back at the narcissistic abuse where it began. And that's where I think meditation, therapy, journaling, and prayer are especially helpful. And reading scriptures that tell you who you are in Christ and who you are in God. So that was the section on, and probably the most important one, the impacts of narcissistic abuse in childhood. Now, the concept of codependency. Um, Why am I talking about codependency separately? Because I want you to understand that a good majority of people who have been in a relationship with a narcissist or with a very toxic or abusive person, or if you were raised by someone, maybe your parents were even there for you and they loved you and they were good to you. My parents were like that. And yet there might have been a situation where there was alcoholism or narcissistic abuse And it might have been more complicated. And it might have even been that the extremes of good and bad were there at the same time. It gets really confusing when it's like that, but that can happen. Um, Your parents may have taken you to Disney World and taken you to the doctor and said, I loved you and read you bedtime stories. But they might have also yelled at you and, and fought. And there might have been abuse in the home and there might have been horrible things said, too. So it can be both ways. And then there are people where it's all mainly healthy. There's not a household where there's not some, you know, conflict. And then there might be some where the child never got anything that was nurturing or kind or good or loving. And that's sad. But let's talk about codependency. So first of all, the traits of codependency. There's an article called What Are the Signs of Codependency by Crystal Raypole in Psych Central. I just want to read over just the traits of codependency in this article because I wanted one that was distinctly the signs of codependency in a person, not just in a relationship, but in any situation. Because a lot of these articles will just talk about how it works in a relationship, but you need to understand if if you're a recovering codependent, first of all, it's not your fault. It's not your fault if you were conditioned that way. Second of all, yes, you can heal. And third of all, there are specific traits you can look for and there are tests you can take. I would take more than one test to see if you're codependent. I would do this over time to test and see if you are and not just assume you are. Because all of us have some of these traits. All of us have some of these traits, just like all of us have some narcissistic traits. So what are some, how to know if someone is codependent, main signs? And I'm scrolling down. You can look at the rest of the article. Um, I'll put it in the show notes, as always. How to know if someone is codependent. Main signs. Codependency isn't considered a mental health condition. I disagree, though. And experts have yet to outline specific diagnostic criteria for it. There is, however, some general agreement on what codependency usually involves. Common signs of codependency include a deep-seated need for approval from others, self-worth that depends on what others think about you, a habit of taking on more work than you can realistically handle, both to earn praise or lighten a loved one's burden. You see how we compensate because we feel like we're not good enough? And again, any of these in of themselves aren't necessarily bad, but when you take them together, it can create a lot of problems for the individual who has these traits. 
Four, a tendency to apologize or take blame in order to keep the peace. A pattern of avoiding conflict. A tendency to minimize or ignore your own desires. Excessive concern about a loved one's habits or behaviors. A habit of making decisions for others or trying to manage, quote, loved ones. A mood that reflects how others feel rather than your own emotions. Guilt or anxiety when doing something for yourself. Doing things you don't really want to simply to make others happy. Idealizing partners or loved ones often to the point of maintaining relationships that leave you unfulfilled. Overwhelming fears of rejection or abandonment. And it says with codependency, the need to support others goes beyond what's generally considered healthy. If you behave in codependent ways, you don't just offer support temporarily, such as when loved ones face a setback. Instead, you tend to focus on caretaking and caring for others to the point that you begin to define yourself in relation to their needs. And I would also argue that if the person allows you to take advantage of them, you're enabling them. So that's not loving to that other person either. So there's there's a line that can be drawn in the sand there where a codependent can enable somebody and where somebody can take advantage and where maybe the person needs a little extra help, but they really are trying. So the next part, how does codependency impact our interactions with others in general? Well, um, people pleasing can, like I said, if you are in a relationship with somebody who's healthy, then that person will not take advantage of you fully. But even healthy people can take advantage and not realize it because you might say yes to something you don't want to do for them that they ask you if you can do. And if you don't say, no, I'd really rather not, then they don't know that. Or maybe they take it for granted. You know, there can be good people and they just don't think about it. But somebody who continuously takes advantage of somebody else's goodwill, that is abuse. That is abuse. So let's look at the causes of codependency. So let's go back to the article that um, we were looking at at the beginning of the podcast. And it's from Sun Behavioral Health Delaware, Sun Behavioral Delaware. So a little bit more about codependency and how it gets started. So when we were talking about how a child, um, how an impact When we were talking about how narcissistic abuse can wire a child for codependency, I think we really covered very well the causes of codependency. But if you'd like, you can go back and review the article from Sun Behavioral Delaware, and it's called The Causes of Codependency, and it talks about how that can wire a child's brain for codependency there. But the last thing that I wanted to talk about in terms of codependency was how codependency impacts relationships and makes us more likely to attract narcissistic partners and others in our lives. And so that's something that I want you to look out for because that's where you want to be able to see the red flags, know what they are. And that's why when you study narcissism and narcissistic abuse, understand the signs, understand the terms, understand the behaviors. Keep in mind if somebody has one or two of them, that's not necessarily a narcissist. And keep in mind that somebody cannot be a narcissist and you can still get red flags that that person is not a good fit for you in a romantic relationship or a marriage, in a friendship, or in other types of relationships like business relationships. 
Keep in mind, it's not just partners. It can also be other forms of relationships. So how codependency impacts our relationships and makes us more likely to attract narcissistic partners, there's an article called The Give and Take Between Narcissistic and Codependent Personalities in Psych Central, and it's by Marissa Moore. The Give and Take Between Narcissistic and Codependent Personalities. And again, I'll put it in the show notes. And the article is probably one of the core concepts of why I'm doing this particular episode. Because I want you to see how narcissistic abuse can be carried over into having similar relationships or attracting similar people to your caretakers and parents and the people you were raised by and the people that you might have been mistreated by growing up in some cases. The article says the attraction between folks with narcissism and those with codependency can be appealing, but could cause harm later on, especially to the codependent. Take heart. You can take preventative steps. So there is a natural attraction between people that are codependent and people that are narcissistic. That really sucks, doesn't it? But that's how it happens. If you're around something your whole childhood, you tend to be attracted to it on a subconscious level. And if you're attracted to something on a subconscious level, even when you think you're avoiding it, even when you look for red flags, sometimes you'll still end up with somebody who's tricky and manipulative, and they're being what they think you want them to be, not who they really are. And that's why it's so important to start a relationship slow. Don't fall for love bombing. And don't let somebody suck you back in once you realize what kind of person they are. Walk away and don't look back. Walk away and don't look back. But it says there is often an attraction between individuals with codependent tendencies and those with narcissistic tendencies. Initially, a narcissistic personality can be attractive for their charisma and confidence because most of them do come across that way. Among other traits, other personal traits, a codependent person can come off at first as kind and selfless on top of other individual attractive traits. The pair may connect for a variety of reasons, including the mutual need to feel needed. And so the narcissist likes somebody who's nurturing, and there's absolutely nothing wrong with being attracted to a nurturing person. That doesn't make you a narcissist. But they are looking for somebody that they can use, even if they are not consciously aware of it. And the codependent is attracted to the, quote, strength and charisma of the narcissist, even if that person truly does not have genuine charisma and strength, and it's just a facade, you see? So the codependent person tends to give continuously while the narcissistic person tends to take. These two personalities have a lot in common, but their differences can make their relationship unhealthy or even toxic. When there's a one-way relationship where one person is giving all the time and the other person is taking, that is not right and that's not healthy. There are going to be times in a relationship where one person may need to pick up more and give more and do more, and that's fine. And there may be areas in the relationship where one person does give more and the other person gives more in another area, and that's fine if it evens out. And it's even fine if in some cases one person is more of a giver and the other person isn't, but they make up for it in other ways. But I, that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about one person is give, 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 because they're trying to people please, because they want to be seen and recognized and validated, because they don't feel enough. And then there's the um, 
person who all they ever want to do is what can I get out of this? What is in it for me? How can I get my needs met from this person? But they don't ever think about the other person's needs and ask them if they're okay and ask them what they can do for them. It There needs to be some give and take. You know, there's a gray area there too, but you get the idea. So the giving people pleaser aspect of codependency, it says if you have codependent tendencies, you might find yourself doing everything you can to please another person. A 2020 study that examined the lived experience of people with codependency found three significant themes present in these individuals. Loss of a sense of self, pattern of imbalance in social, occupational, and emotional aspects of life. I would say they give too much or they are in need too much. Problems attributed to parental abandonment or parental control in childhood. You see the two extremes there again. The loss of sense of self usually comes from not wanting to face criticism. In addition, you may consistently neglect your own needs due to a fear of abandonment stemming from your childhood. And then it talks about why people with narcissistic behaviors are attracted to you if you're a codependent. It says if you have codependent tendencies, people with narcissistic behaviors can be attracted to you for reasons including your people-pleasing behavior. Research from 2020 that examined living with narcissistic personality disorder found several patterns including grandiosity, vulnerability, perfectionism, not that if you have those traits that you're a narcissist. That doesn't mean that. But people with symptoms of narcissism rely only rely on other people for their self-esteem and their self-worth. Those are what you might call energy vampires. They take it to an extreme. It says they might feel down or depressed if they don't feel like they're being admired or praised. The difference between a codependent and a narcissist is a narcissist doesn't care about love as much as being admired and praised and seen. A codependent wants a genuine loving relationship, not just the fake stuff. So it says that narcissists might also rely on other people to feel worthy or loved. You see there's some common traits there, but there's also some differences. The aspects of narcissism, and so it says a narcissistic partner can devalue others in their relationships, need to feel more special than or sometimes superior to others, Want to feel important, praised, and admired without offering others the same praise? Do you see how a codependent isn't like that? They may want these things, but they don't take it out on other people as much. They can, but they don't always. And then it says, use someone in their family as a scapegoat and use tactics when angry or feeling cornered such as gaslighting or narcissistic projection. It says, eventually, the exaggeration of their self-importance can spur folks with narcissism to take and take without giving anything in return, and this often causes harm to their partners. Duh, you think? <laughs> Sorry. And then a codependent, it, it goes more into am I a codependent or a narcissist? Again, um, I want you to read this because it can definitely help you to understand the differences. But, and there are some overlaps, but let me tell you, let me tell you, a narcissist is a lot more toxic and a lot more harmful. Codependents can actually be kind and sweet and even gentle individuals. Narcissists almost never are. But there's a, it goes into detail with some of those traits. And then it talks about people with narcissism can also be codependent. And codependents can have traits of narcissism, but they aren't narcissists. You see the difference. Similarities and overlap between narcissists and codependent behavior. 
And so it distinguishes. There's a chart here and it shows a, a Venn diagram with three circles. And in the middle, there are some that both codependents and narcissists may have. And those are the need to feel needed, sensitivity to criticism, enmeshed relationships. Enmeshed means there's no boundaries and there's a lot of overstepping. Insecurity, abandonment fears, over-reliance on others. People with narcissism tend to be takers. That's not in the league of codependency. They lack empathy, not in the league of codependency. Inflated sense of self-importance, not a codependent. Sense of entitlement, not codependent traits. And then the codependent ones that are not narcissistic, often a highly sensitive person, that's not a narcissist. People pleaser, not a narcissist. Defers self-care to others, not a narcissist. Low self-esteem, not a narcissist. So you look at that chart and read it and see the differences and see where there's distinctions. And there are tests and quizzes you can take, but I can tell you this. If you're worried that you're a narcissist and you're worried you can hurt other people, you're not a narcissist because a narcissist couldn't give a crap if they are a narcissist and they couldn't give a crap if they hurt other people. They just don't care. I'm not saying a narcissist doesn't care about other people at all. I'm not saying narcissists, there's none capable of any empathy. I think some of them are capable of low levels of empathy, but overall, they don't really care. Um, that's the difference. Can a codependent and a narcissist relationship work? It may work if both partners can begin the process of healing through therapy and self-reflection. The problem is, is that the narcissist is rarely willing to do that. And then the article recaps um, the overall points in the article. But this one, if you read any article in the show notes, this one I would encourage you to read along with the um, Sun Behavior one. Uh, this one called The Give and Take Between Narcissistic and Codependent Personalities, and it's by Marissa Moore, and it's in Psych Central. I'll leave it in the show notes for you. So I also wanted to include some other resources on codependency, general resources, and I will put those in the show notes as well. One of them is a book that is like the no pun intended, pun intended, I don't know, the Bible of codependency. And it's called Codependent No More, Codependent No More. And it's a book written many, many years ago. It's been updated. It's well-renowned, but it's by Melody Beatty, Melody Beatty. And it's called Codependent No More. I read it years and years ago before I realized how powerful and impactful it was and then when I started digging into the work of Lisa Romano, and I was like, oh my gosh, this is me. So um, another person I recommend is Lisa Romano. Lisa Romano, I'll put it in the show notes. Her YouTube channel, look up her codependency videos. So you can go to her channel and then type in codependency and you'll get all kinds of stuff. Again, Hers isn't necessarily Christian-based, and you may not agree with some of the things that she says, so take it with a grain of salt, use discernment, pray about it. If you don't feel like it's for you, then don't do it. You know, I, that's your, that's between you and God, okay? As always, use discernment, prayer, and your discretion when using any of these resources and what God, you feel like God is leading you to do. The next resource is called Setting Boundaries. Setting Boundaries is a Christian-based book. And it's just that. It's about setting boundaries. And the reason that I included it, it's by Henry Cloud and John Ta Townsend. Henry Cloud and John Townsend is because while it's not directly related to codependency, 
It's up that alley since one way to heal from codependency is to learn to set healthy and loving boundaries, to not enable people, to honor people by teaching them to be their best selves. And if you let somebody run all over you, you're not doing that. And I know I struggle with it too, especially if I'm in a vulnerable place or in my life. But that book is great. And if you, that it's Christian based, no reservations whatsoever. It's called Setting Boundaries and it's by Henry Cloud and John Townsend. So in the first sections, we talked about how a person can be programmed through narcissistic abuse with specific traits and programming and brain wiring and behaviors and trauma. And we talked about how codependency can be created through those traits in the people that you're around, either growing up or in a long-term unhealthy relationship. And that all leads up to the section that talks about how that can impact our relationships, our adult relationships specifically. So we often will take the traits that we have that are no fault of our own and project our relationships from our caretakers, our parents, or an abuser abuser that we were with for a long time. And we will take that programming, take that wiring, and take that behavior and project it often onto loving and healthy relationships. So first I talked about how that can increase your chances of being in an unhealthy or narcissistic relationship or an abusive relationship. And But also, just because you were raised in that situation doesn't necessarily mean that you'll marry somebody who's abusive. It increases the chances of marrying a narcissist or some sim, sim, people with similar traits. But that doesn't necessarily mean all people do. They don't. A lot of people are very fortunate and they find spouses and partners that are loving and understanding and kind and patient. And or they have friends and family members that are that way as well. And um, I can tell you in my own life, this is true. So, um, you know, just because you're in a family where there's some dysfunction doesn't mean that everybody in the family is like that. There can be some exceptionally functional, healthy, and loving people, even in the close relationships that you have. You may have grown up spending a lot of time with friends who you went to their house and that was the first time you saw people that actually were loving and kind to each other or didn't yell and shout or there was some kind of order and boundaries and kindness at the same time. But you get what I'm saying. So, you know, in a healthy and loving relationship, we can actually take these traits and project them into a good a relationship with a good person, and it can actually cause problems. And so the problems this can cause in an otherwise healthy relationship, just because we were raised by codependents, narcissists, alcoholics, doesn't mean all our relationships are unhealthy, especially if we had healthy role models too, like other parents, step-parents, siblings, grandparents, teachers, neighbors, friends that we spend a lot of time with especially. There could be some good mixed in with some of the problematic stuff. So how do we maintain and attract healthy relationships? How do we maintain and attract healthy relationships? So it's not just about, you know, you may already have some of these in your life. You may have a husband or a wife that's loving. You may have a best friend that's loving. Or you may have a sweet, kind, loving sister or uncle or grandmother. You get the idea. But one way 
is to know when we're projecting our programming and trauma from narcissistic and other forms of abuse and adverse experiences onto a healthy and loving relationship. And so I've included here an article called Projection, The Great Threat to Intimate Relationships. And it's by Leon F. Seltzer, Ph.D. in Psychology Today. And you may be saying, well, what is projection? That's a good question. So the article talks about projection is often learned in childhood and may keep individuals in a state of feeling like helpless victims if left unaddressed. Once someone recognizes their tendency to project things they don't like in themselves onto others, they can work on stopping it. So you have to recognize it. And then developing self-confidence, letting go of the past, and establishing a clear identity separate from one's partner are all techniques that can help prevent projection. That's why knowing who we are in God and Christ has nothing to do with anybody else. That's between us and God. And that's why it's important that that's our foundation. And having that agency, that sense of personal identity, that sense of autonomy is so important. And you need to be with people who respect that. In you as well. Um, I'm just going to go to a quick article in Psychology Today that defines it. It says, projection is the process of displacing one's feelings onto a different person, animal, or object. The term is most commonly used to describe defensive projection, attributing one's own unacceptable urges to another. For example, if someone continuously bullies or ridicules a peer about his insecurities, the bully might be projecting his own struggle with self-esteem onto the other person. And I would also argue that um, it's where we take situations where someone doesn't mean any harm. And and when we're codependent, that can just mess up your mind. You don't even know what's what. And you don't know what's okay and what's not okay. It took me so long to figure out this is acceptable behavior. This is not. But you have to study, 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 study. Observe, 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 observe. Observe healthy relationships. Learn, study, read, watch YouTube videos. And just keep going over it again and again and again and again and again. And it will click. One day it will click and you'll see the difference. And you'll know where that boundary is for you. And projection, I think, can also be where you think somebody is doing something harmful to you, but they're actually not in some cases because you're taking that hurt from the past and that perception. So so it's one thing to be aware and to be alert and to have red flags. But if you're paranoid in a healthy relationship, that can actually destroy it. It sucks because you're like, well, how do I know the difference? And that's why you have to educate yourself and learn about this stuff and condition yourself to look, keep learning and keep learning and keep learning until you, you know it inside out and read and study and pray and meditate and write and observe and learn. And, and that's how you how you learn this stuff. And so the uh, original article says, blaming others for reminding us, however accidentally, of our never healed emotional pain and projecting that pain back onto them is something like taking an anesthetic for physical distress. The painkiller may reduce or even extinguish the ache temporarily, but until the wound actually heals, the pain will return. So at best, this ready-made defense offers only us a passing relief for what internally continues to ail us. That's why we need to heal and do the healing work and release the trauma from our neural networks. And it says, and the hidden costs of constantly employing this self-protective device 
are substantial. It's usually unconscious. It's not done intentionally. But it says, plus the single most serious long-term cost is that similar to other defense mechanisms, it thwarts the maturation and personal growth that are correlated with living a happy, contented life. So it talks more about how we can take that and it can we can actually self-sabotage. Most of us, if we're codependents, have probably had a friendship or a relationship. It could have even been like, you know, a puppy love in eighth grade or something, you know, but we've probably had a relationship with somebody who was kind and we sabotaged it because we didn't feel worthy of it. And I would argue that that's a form of projection as well. Instead, we self-sabotage continually repeating the same toxic behaviors that initially created our ongoing tensions and conflicts, even with those we're most committed to and would like to feel more securely attached to. Our lives will remain static and unfulfilling. Enduring projections will interfere with our developing the insight that would enable us to see others as they really are versus how others' early projections may have compelled us to see ourselves in a negatively distorted way. So I talk all the time about how how we can be idealistic and be fooled and tricked with love bombing and hoovering and all that and end up in a relationship that's damaging and harmful. But the sad thing and crappy thing about all this is that it can go the other way too. You can actually um, not feel safe in a relationship that is safe. And somebody could be the kindest person in the world and because of that, you're not attracted to them and you sabotage what could otherwise be a good thing and maybe don't give the chemistry time to grow, which it can in some cases, not always. Or it could be a friendship and you just continually sabotage that friendship and then you end up losing it because most healthy people are not going to put up with that their whole life, no matter how kind they are, nor should they. But, and, you know, it just continues to talk about the impacts of that. But I wanted to talk about um, how do you move on? You know, how do you, how do you move past that? How do you overcome that? So it says, but consider as well that you're involved in an abusive relationship where the projection isn't mutual, but rigidly one-sided and all your partner's negative impulses and traits are unceremoniously dumped on you. So it's good to be aware that somebody else can do that to you. And in some cases, it could be somebody who's not narcissistic. They could be a codependent like you. And that's why sometimes two codependents can still be a dysfunctional relationship. It might be wise to consider bidding farewell to such a harmful relationship. Now, how to move beyond projection to a clear, compassionate understanding of ourselves and others. It says, obviously, the first thing you'll need to do here is ascertain how much of an issue your defense mechanism of projection has, unawares, been sabotaging you. So, I would argue, one, seek therapy from a professional. And they can help you untangle this mess where you're having trouble finding clarity, where you're having trouble seeing the difference between, am I projecting? Is this person being abusive? Am I projecting my fears onto this relationship or is this person truly being harmful? And that, a therapist can be objective and help you figure that out. Journaling is another way to get clarity in your mind. Slowing your mind down so you can understand it and also and, and see your genuine emotional reactions for what they are. Is this a warning or am I projecting? And you can start to see the difference if you slow your mind down and feel those emotions. 
And as you educate yourself, you'll also be able to differentiate. And that's where the Henry Cloud Boundaries book is a great place to start. What is a harmful behavior and what is me projecting my fear onto somebody who is simply doing their best? So it says here, ask yourself, are you easily hurt by the wounds and actions, words and actions of others? Do you think your hot buttons might be hotter and quicker to react than others, or might others have suggested this to you? Do you have a habit of blaming others, even at times when admittedly the situation is rather ambiguous? Do you daydream of getting even with others you perceive as hurting you, attributing negative motives to them you haven't actually verified? So you see where there's a little paranoia involved? Is it hard for you to put yourself in another's shoes, or have others told you they frequently feel you're misreading them? Do you emotionally detach from situations in order to assess them more accurately? Have you been told you have problems controlling your anger? Are you especially reactive to individuals who remind you of people in the past with whom you still have unfinished business? When you consider people you particularly dislike or disapprove of, do you ever ask yourself whether you share certain traits with them that you've yet to accept in yourself? Ooh, I've done that one before, and that one is deep. That's hard. So I would argue um, this article, I would actually journal this stuff and be completely brutally honest with yourself. No matter what comes up, let it come up and just be honest with yourself. And that can give you some insights and clarity too. It's the section, how to move beyond projection to a clear, compassionate understanding of ourselves and others. And it's a bulleted list of questions in the article, Projection, the Great Threat to Intimate Relationships. I'll put it in the show notes again. And then it talks about if you recognize these characteristics in yourself, there are some things you can do to rectify this self-defeating programming, and mostly it's a matter of setting boundaries between yourself and others. Um, gaining more self-confidence, easier said than done, right? But when you were young and hadn't yet grown into the unique person you are today, how much might have you been conditioned by your parents to take on the identity that they, because they had their own never-resolved self-doubts, projected onto you? Do you see where generational trauma gets passed down? You see that thread there? If you can find that thread and start pulling at it and start working with it, that's where you'll find healing. It says, talk to that insecure child inside of you and help them understand why they can now let go of those aversive thoughts and feelings, unfortunately assimilated from their caretakers. That's where um, I have a strong belief in inner child work. So doing inner child work is a good one. Another good one is IFS in, in its um, internal family systems. And I won't get into what that is, but that's another um, form of therapy that can be very helpful for overcoming projection. Um, th then it talks about how to silence or bring down the harsh inner critic. And I can't go into all of this because this article just goes on and on about solutions, which is great because most articles only talk about problems. And then there's one little paragraph about solutions. So really look at this 
article here and look at some of these solutions. It says, reevaluate your past generally, seeking to understand how you may have interpreted others' thoughts and actions arbitrarily because of unresolved feelings of fear, pain, and shame. Again, journaling for this kind of work is great. This step is simply about bringing a new understanding that can free you from hurts, grudges, and animosities you may still be holding on to. In locating your authentic self, autonomy, agency, self-identity, buried somewhere beneath your projection, ask whether in your present-day relationships you've implicitly defined your identity on the basis of your partner's successes or failures or anybody else, I would say any other kind of relationship, or messages you've received from them that may be more about themselves than you. And then it gets to the end of the article. Projection most often manifests in intimate relationships. And so to get that clear, genuine intimacy can be achieved only when both of you recognize your projections and consciously set about individuating from one another. Having separate identities, there's us, but there's also him and her or whoever. There's two separate people there. For To be truly intimately united, you need to learn first how to be truly separate. That's the irony. You've got to have your own sense of identity to have a healthy relationship of any kind. And that's where codependency, codependents get enmeshed with other people, meaning there's no boundaries where I end and where you begin, you, you don't know. But when you start to pull back and separate and gain your own sense of identity and have boundaries and unenmesh, I don't know if that's a word, but that's where healing begins. So last section, last section, ways to heal. Proof that the brain and nervous system can heal from traumatic and narcissistic abuse. And there's an article called Healing from Childhood Trauma, the roles of neuroplasticity and EMDR, effects of trauma on the brain before and after. That's a long article title, so I won't read it again. It's by Nancy Lovering in Psych Central. And basically, it says childhood trauma can have a lasting effect on physical and mental health, but with the help of neuroplasticity, healing is possible. I've talked about neuroplasticity. It's basically where the brain can be reconditioned in adulthood, and it can change, and you can heal. You can actually recondition and rewire your brain with new neural connections, and you can sever old, unhealthy ones so that they don't continue to repeat old patterns. And it says these brain changes help us learn and adapt to our environments. But when we're placed in very stressful situations, like during traumatic experiences, some brain changes can result in lasting physical and mental health changes. It says that said, positive change is possible. The neuroplasticity that enables brains to change in response to trauma also allows them to heal. Therapies like eye movement, desensitization, and re processing EMDR therapy show promising potential for our childhood trauma recovery. So I use this article because this is one example of how you can heal. The article was about EMDR and one other strategy, but there are a lot of others as well. And it talks about how trauma during childhood can change the brain. We've already talked about that some. Trauma leads to a sensitized nervous system. It keeps that amygdala in amygdala and fight or flight. We already talked about that. Trauma leads to increased inflammation. So it also affects your health long-term and your body. But the neuroplasticity, the role of neuroplasticity in healing is important here as well. It's the brain's ability, it says, to rewire itself in response to your experiences. 
In the past, doctors assumed that this ability was limited to a short time during youth. However, because of improvements in brain imaging technology, we now know that neuroplasticity is a lifelong quality. Thank God. God knew what he was doing, didn't he? This means that regardless of age, it may be possible to rewire your brain and nervous system from childhood trauma by having new, positive, and supportive experiences. Think of neuroplasticity as creating habits. To use this to your advantage, you simply repeat the behaviors and experiences you want to keep and avoid the ones you do not. You can read about some neuroplasticity exercises here. So if you want to do that, that might be a great place to get started if you're not sure where to start. And um, so I'll put the article in the show notes, as always. And then it goes on to talk about EMDR and neuroplasticity. I'm not going to go into all that, but it's just one form of therapy that can help among many. And you can look at the sources as well. So that's wonderful news. We can rewire our brains and science has proved that and we can do it in adulthood all the way into old age. It may be harder to recondition ourselves, but it can be done. It can be done. And then I wanted to show you the physical proof right before your eyes because this is just wonderful. There's um, another article, Effects of Trauma on the Brain Before and After from the Rome Foundation by Douglas Drossman, MD. So this was put out by a doctor and it's an article that talks about, now there is some some disturbing stuff in the article. It's about a girl who had a brain scan and she was abused as a child. She was sexually abused and abused in other ways. And she had some very traumatic experiences, very traumatic. And it affected her body and her mind. Obviously, that's going to happen. Very sad situation. But many years later, this girl got therapy and she healed this stuff. I'm not saying it was perfect. I'm not saying she didn't still have problems. But she was able to rewire her brain with neuroplasticity through a lot of hard work and therapy. And if you look at the brain scans, it shows you the before and after of the different sections of the brain and how they're impacted by trauma. First, with the impact of childhood trauma itself from abuse, and then what happens when she rewired her brain afterwards, that her actual brain looked different, the more the way it should have looked from the beginning. So... Just look at those brain scans and read the article. To see it visually is a totally different thing. But it says um, it is not all in the patient's head and it's not psychiatric condition. My research shows that there is a physiological and structural change in the brain that causes more severe pain victims of abuse in severe pain in victims of abuse and trauma. But my research also contains proof of a reason to be hopeful. Brain scans of patients taken after treatment prove that these changes are reversible. If you or a loved one is suffering, I encourage you to seek treatment. Resources for further reading, it gives you some of those. So just look at this article. It's amazing. It's not that long in the pictures of the brain scans. He explains them there. Okay. I wanted you to see physical proof because there's just something about that that is incredibly encouraging because you know it's real. And then um, ways to reprogram our minds. 
And this was an article that I went through some of it earlier. Long-term narcissistic abuse can cause brain damage because it talks about how it affects the hippocampus, the amygdala, narcissistic abuse changes in your brain in general, and then it says what to do. So that's another resource I would encourage you to go back to. It's in the show notes, and that was one that we looked at earlier. And then dealing with or getting out of relationships with narcissists, um, dealing with or getting out of relationships with narcissists, there is an article called 10 Pointers to End Toxic Relationships. So this isn't just with narcissists, but in any seriously toxic relationship. If it's causing you physical harm or you're in physical danger, get help and get out now. If it's a situation where you can bide your time, but it's very harmful, I would encourage you to pray about it, but most likely getting out of the relationship is the best thing. If there are problems, that doesn't mean you just leave a relationship. Um, If it's, you know, kind of complicated, but, you know, I can't make that decision for you. You need to pray about it, but if your well-being or your health or your safety or your children's is in any kind of danger, you need to get out of that situation now, okay? Get help. Find help. Call law enforcement if it's that extreme. Go find a place you can stay where that person won't find you, but get out. And then you can go from there. So it says, you know, it could be, what I like about this article, it doesn't just say romantic relationships. When you're trying, when I'm trying to find an article on how to end a narcissistic abusive relationship, Everything is about marriage and partners and and boyfriends and girlfriends and all that. And that's not the only kinds of relationships there are. You know, family members, co-workers, friends, partner of a friend or a relative, a neighbor, a business partner, a student at your school. There are a lot of types of relationships you may need to end. The first step, it says, though, is to step out of denial. The first step towards problem solving any um, solving any problems is to look at it straight in the face. This is especially true for ending toxic relationships. And then it gives you some steps there. Two, keep a log of emotions. Writing about your emotions in a place where that person won't find them may be the last thing you feel like doing. You might feel too edgy to focus. And besides, you could be worried writing it down might feel worse. But it says that writing down your feelings, like expressive writing, the um, research shows, they agree, um, experts, that you might get more anxious, scared, or upset right after writing. But afterwards, in the long term, you have um, improved health. And it gives you some of the um, types of improved health you might have, like lower blood pressure. Number three, identify the perks. Your toxic relationship may even have perks. What's keeping you there? Finances, family, friendship. Maybe it's not the best, but it's still there. Um, everything's familiar. Number four, fill in the holes. There will be holes that open up in your life after the perks are gone. Now is the time to plan to fill them up. For example, if you're trying to get out of an extremely toxic marriage, you may need to start thinking about your finances or where you're going to live, for example. If it's a friendship and you're completely codependent on that toxic person, you may want to start making new friends and branching out slowly and carefully. Number five, surround yourself with positive friends. I just said that. Refresh your cash by taking a look at which friends or family members can support you and you them. Everyone needs friends, right? Even one person is enough. They will give you courage of an and an idea of what life can be outside of a toxic relationship. You can also consider reaching out to a therapist or finding a support group. So if you don't have that in your personal life, if you can get a therapist, 
a support group, a pastor, something like that could be helpful as well. Drop a note to yourself. In addition to everyone's support in your support network, there's only the one person you desperately need on your side. You. You are the only one who knows you best and has been with you the longest. Number seven, treat yourself. There's nothing wrong with giving yourself a reward for taking a positive step forward. Number eight, heal the guilt. When you end a toxic relationship, you may feel guilty for many reasons. Maybe you feel guilty that you stayed too long, hurt the person, or think the relationship might have harmed your children. Whatever the reasons you feel guilty, the first step towards healing is self-forgiveness. Ask God to forgive you. Forgive yourself. Show yourself compassion. All of those things also have health benefits, and it explains those there. Number nine, repeat affirmations. Affirmations can be powerful tools of change if you want to feel strong. For example, say, I am strong to yourself. Number 10, allow some rest. Most relationship experts say one of the best things you can do after a breakup of any kind is to give yourself time to heal. This is especially true after a toxic relationship. And then it recaps. Um... But those are some things you can do to help yourself take evaluation of and if you need to get out of a toxic relationship. And then the other one, we talk about getting out of unhealthy relationships. And I also talked about how we can um, damage healthy and loving relationships. So I wanted very quickly to talk about how to maintain a healthy relationship when recovering from codependency. This is the very last point in the podcast for this episode. But there's an article, Healthy Relationships When Recovering from Codependency in Medium by Alexandra Ringer. And this is just a basic list, but there are a lot of great resources on healing from abuse, narc abuse, trauma, and codependency. So keep in mind that this isn't just in romantic relationships, but also in friendships, relationships with colleagues and neighbors, and other close relationships with healthier family members. Okay? So this article, five to, it's, like I said, talking about partner marriage relationships. But keep in mind that you can also use these same steps in any kind of healthy, loving relationship to help you. This kind of goes with how do you not project in healthy relationships. Um, Other things you can do, be self-reflective, self-reflection. It says being in a relationship is going to bring up a lot, a lot of good, but also a lot of hard. This is going to include triggers, emotions, and memories you may not have wanted to feel. And it goes on. And so it says, if you what you are feeling is from the past and meant to stay there, keep it there. If it's a fear or a trigger in your current relationship, make a healthy action plan as to how to deal with it. Examine what is coming up and reflect on how you can use it to mold your current relationship in healthy ways, obviously. Honesty. Get real with your partner or your friend or whoever about what you have been through and what may come for you in your new relationship. Tell him or her your story, including triggers and parts you may not be proud of. With somebody you trust, with somebody that loves you, and you know that, you can do that with somebody who's safe. Don't do it with somebody that's not safe. Only somebody who's worthy of that. Number three, communication. This is where self-reflection and honesty come in. Communicate it all. Without communication, your partner may build assumptions themselves about what is going on in your relationship. Um, Number four, grace. Keep in mind that even while you don't want to be in a relationship with someone who's abusive, nobody's perfect. Everybody's going to have flaws. There's going to be conflicts. You're going to have arguments. And that's okay. That's how you work out things in a relationship. And... You know, so it says you may 
you will not be perfect in this relationship, so let that expectation go now. Triggers will arise. Behaviors you're not proud of will show face and maybe even the dreaded I've done it again moment in recovery. You're a human being, not a human doing. Practice giving yourself grace. And then, of course, give your partner grace, too. This may be the first time they have known anyone who struggles with codependency and nonetheless been in a relationship with someone who is recovering from it. The important thing is you are both intentional in your relationship and taking the steps to ensure it is healthy. Number five, work, but the rewarding kind. Um... So in this kind, you want to focus on healing, not the kind where you're trying to people please. And that pretty much sums up what it's talking about there. Those are five steps to maintain and create a healthy relationship where it's mutual, but you are both individuals and you're not enmeshed, where you respect that person's autonomy and free will and they respect yours, where you have boundaries and that's okay, where you can be open and honest and feel safe doing so, and where you can do things for each other, but there's give and take on both sides of the relationship. So that should be true of any relationship, regardless of what kind it is. And that is the podcast for today. Thank you so much for listening. If you haven't, please go to the YouTube channel, Christian Emotional Recovery, Christian Emotional Recovery, and subscribe. I'm trying to put out a an episode. It's a shorter one, and it's usually more specialized topics. Usually the um, videos are anywhere from 10 to 30 minutes, and I try to put one out about every two weeks, give or take, when I'm able. And also check out the Facebook group, which is Christian Emotional Recovery Trauma Survivors Unite. So check out the Facebook group and the YouTube video. Thank you for taking this time to go on this journey with me today. This was episode 8. And it's season two. And the name of this episode is um, from the series on narcissistic abuse, impact of narcissistic abuse on our relationships with others. Impact of narcissistic abuse on our relationship with others. If you haven't, check out the first two episodes in the series, which covers what you need to know about narcissistic abuse. And next time in episode nine, we will talk about the impact of narcissistic abuse in our relationship with God, which is the most important thing. Thank you so much for listening, and I hope you have a wonderful day. Remember, you are fearfully and wonderfully made, and God loves you. Thank you so much for tuning in to this week's episode of Christian Emotional Recovery, hosted by Rachel Leroy. For links to this week's resources and to join the discussion, check out this episode's show notes at christianemotionalrecovery.com, where you can also find links to our YouTube channel and Facebook group. Join our email list and get other episodes and resources. If you enjoyed the podcast, please rate and review the podcast and tell a friend who may benefit from this message. See you next time. And remember, beloveds, God loves you, and you are fearfully and wonderfully made.